I'm not saying you want to sit down and talk to your kid about that you have crazy money worries. But I did. I didn't dump it on him, but I did. I shared. I was accountable. Shared that because if it was upsetting me, that's the me that I'm bringing to the connection. And I'm accountable for sharing. Right now, this is not about you. I'm stressing about money or I'm stressing about this. And that's the key right there. This isn't about you. Hello and welcome to Be The Wolf. I am your host, Jenea Barnes. Many people struggle to be the fullest, biggest, truest versions of themselves. They bend to fit into other people's ideals of who and what they should be. They tame their brilliance to avoid judgment and gain approval. A long time ago, people attempted to tame the wilderness of Yellowstone National Park by eradicating predators. Taming the wilderness collapsed the ecosystem. But there's hope. In the mid-90s, 41 wolves were introduced into the park and with this, the ecosystem replenished itself and flourished. The wolves did nothing but be exactly who they are meant to be and do what they were born to do. So I say to you, be the wolf. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Be the Wolf. I am excited to be here. We're going to talk about the sense of security. And I know so many people out there are craving that sense of security, right? I stay in this job so that I have a sense of security. I need my business to do well so that I have a sense of security. I want to have a loving partner so that I have a sense of security. And of course, always wanting to create that sense of security for your children, for those of you out there who are parents. I am here today with Lainey Liberty, and she is a teen mentor. But I'm before we dive into this sense of security, I would love to give her the opportunity to share what it is that she does. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, first of all, so much for the invitation. I am so excited to be talking on this topic because it's such an important part of growing up and also understanding our internal worlds. So let me just answer your question real fast, and then then I can't wait to jump in and talk about security, right? So. I'm a teen mentor. I'm also, well, I'm a mom. And that to me is like the most important job I've ever or role I've ever taken on in my entire life. I also am an advocate for uh, learning outside of the school system. And believe it or not, I'm an anarchist, which means I question everything and I choose with my power of consent to which systems I choose to interact with. And I'm an author and a speaker. So yeah, and a little bit later, we'll talk about this, which is my best-selling book. So yes, yes, it's about, I'll give you guys a little clue. It's about being seen and heard. And I know this is something so many people struggle with is that feeling seen and heard. And of course, that really ties in with this sense of security. Totally. It's all interconnected, isn't it? 
Right. And so it's when I think about me growing up <laughs> as a child, I never really had a sense of security. I felt like everything was chaos all the time, any of the time. And I so desperately wanted to be seen and heard, understood. I wanted to know that it was okay to exist. And I didn't really get that feedback. And because of that, after I left home at age 15, and then I ended up coming back, but I got my sense of security through starting a job because that somehow let me know if I had money coming in, I would somehow be okay. I would, I would be secure. Now, that led to, of course, workaholism and all kinds of things like that. But tell me, what is, what is your thoughts about where security really comes from? Well, I, I truly believe that security is a function of the brain. And I believe that attachment attachment styles and the uh, manner in which we're attached to our caretakers between ages zero and seven really indicate and inform how secure we feel in relationships, in the world around us, and also, you know, stepping outside of our comfort zone. For somebody who was raised in an environment without a secure attachment, <laughs> really gave me insight to what it's like to be walking through the planet not feeling safe. And that became my responsibility and accountability to repair that, to do the inner child work, to reparent, to reprogram my my you know wiring in order to have that understanding that I am safe, my needs are met, and I needed to learn how my sense of not being safe and secure affected my life in order to address what was missing. So that indicated there were needs that weren't being met. There were patterns that were being played over and over. And like you, we have like a very similar response. Trauma responses for me were hyper-independence mm -hmm. and the workaholic workaholic uh, tendencies, my, my belief, my programming around quote unquote productivity became that artificial security that I held on to in order to, to get me to the place that I wanted to be, which was very similar to yours. For you, it was money. And for me, it was about money equals independence. And so all of those things go hand in hand. Yes, we know that money is important. We need to make a living on this planet, but that's not the purpose of life. It <laughs> has to just be one of the roles that we we play, you know, or that we take on in order to be human and to have this human experience. But it's not the reason why we're here. We're here to relate. We're here to connect. And when those things weren't a part of your childhood and you didn't build the neural pathways to understand that it's safety and security, then those are the things that we need to address and take accountability for as an adult and reprogram. 
I think one of the things that's really important here is this idea of responsibility. Yeah. We did not have perfect childhoods. And I can tell you, everybody out there, even the people with the stereotypical perfect childhoods, did not have perfect childhoods. And you are a result of the way you responded to your environment pretty much mm -hmm. under the age of 10. When you said seven, you are a little sponge. Under the age of seven, you are a sponge. You are soaking everything up. And you don't yet fully understand that the world is not about you. So when something doesn't go right or you feel insecure or unsafe, you think that it's because of something you did. It is the natural response of a child to think that they did something wrong and that's why these not so great things are happening to them. And so because of that, people tend to carry those beliefs with them. And so, and those patterns of, well, things aren't going right. It must be because I did something wrong. And that feeling that you didn't do something wrong creates a fear in, that you, the feeling that you did something wrong creates a fear inside of you and makes you feel unstable, like you're not safe. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I always said, and I work with teens, as you know, and one of the things that I explain to teens is, Nature is sometimes playing cruel jokes on us because <laughs> we don't have the developmental ability to process something outside of the me-centric belief system or the me-centric thinking that we take on from zero to seven. It's the world through my lens. It's the world through, I mean, as an adult, yes, it's the world through our lenses and that's perspectives and worldviews, but we become more acutely, consciously aware of those things. But as a child, the reality is dad comes home, you're three years old and you're sitting on the the rug on, in the living room waiting for him and you raise your arms, daddy, daddy, come get me. And he had a bad day and had a flat tire and maybe he has diarrhea. Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? The fact is he didn't come to you and that is perceived as a small trauma. That is a disappointment. That is my needs aren't met. And we don't have the cognitive ability to be able to process in that moment, oh, something else is going on. This isn't about me. Right. That's what an adult would say, but a child would say, I'm not lovable. Something's wrong with me. And the moment we have that first thought of that, it's already created a pattern, a firing pattern yeah. of the neurons in the brain, which means it's easier to go back to that pattern or that potential thought when something else happens, even though it may be completely out of context and completely incorrect. And the thing about the brain, which is so interesting, we lay the pathways of our foundational beliefs between those ages of zero and seven and under 10, as you said, but the brain doesn't know the difference between yeah. truth or a falsehood or a lie. The brain 
only knows that this pattern of thinking, the habitual thought over and over, is perceived as a truth. And that gets buried in our subconscious and that becomes part of our programming. And to me, that is the stuff that we need to uncover. Because any time in our childhood where we didn't feel safe or loved, or important, or seen, or heard, or understood. We tell ourselves the reason being is because we're not lovable, because we're not worthy, because something's wrong with us. And that, this belief, this thought, belief equals this belief, it's sometimes really hard to unravel. That's the thing that travels with us through our adult life until we start doing lots of internal work, self-inquiry, shadow work, all sorts of stuff to, to, to start creating the communication between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. Yeah. And it's such a big piece of why I do as I help business owners, I help people to break through whatever plateau they're at. Yeah. It's why I work, do a lot of work with the subconscious mind because our brain is just firing these same patterns. It's why, like, if you mm-hmm. had a job before maybe you went into business, you kept having the same kind of boss over and over. And then some people are like, well, screw this. I'm just going to own my own business. So I don't have to deal with this anymore. But you end up creating, like, then you have clients that are like that because your brain is searching for the familiar because it knows that you're alive right now. And so therefore, whatever it did in the past, whatever you did in the past must be good enough to keep you alive. But is it good enough to have you live a life that you love, live a life that you deserve? And so those redoing those pathways and changing those pathways, that becomes our responsibility. It doesn't matter what happened to you as a child. And Obviously, what happened to you was important and deserves to be seen, heard, and dealt with. And also, you can't do anything about what happened in the past, but you can take steps to move forward and reprogram those neural pathways so that you can actually create different patterns in your life. And that's such a big piece of what doing the work you always hear people doing the work is about and some of those some of those ways of doing the work are more effective than others but it does become it boils down to you get to decide and this is a big piece of security too feeling like you have choice you get to decide that you want something better and from there, you've got to take the steps to get it. It's not just going to magically happen. You know, people who win the lottery are often broke within three years. Yeah, They were waiting for this magical thing to happen and save them. But even with millions of dollars, it doesn't save them. They end up right back where they started. And so you as human beings have to take responsibility for your own experience. If you want, if you're content where you are, great. But if you want something better, if you want to feel that sense of security, no matter what your situation is, you've got to take the steps. 
Yeah, I couldn't have said it any better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we are totally in alignment there. I think part of the challenges in conventional culture, Western mm -hmm. culture specifically, is we don't value understanding about our internal worlds. So understanding what's happening internally, having tools to be able to do the work or self-inquiry or whatever modality works for each individual. Most people are not even aware that these things exist. Totally. And also having safe spaces that are free of judgment to allow people to be seen and heard and understood. Part of the, the human technique that keeps us disconnected is this sort of shroud of shame. Many of us feel shame around parts of ourselves that we disown, like the bad parts. You know, I don't want anybody to see that I'm controlling sometimes or that I'm this or that I'm that. And so I do my very, very best to cover that up because I'm ashamed of it. And shame casts those things even deeper into our own shadows, into our subconscious, and makes it very difficult for us to access. But if we don't love all of ourselves, all of us, the good, the bad, we're disowning parts of ourself, which keeps us separate, which helps shame amplify and grow, right? So being seen, heard, and understood involves an act of trust and tools and judgment-free zones and safe spaces and all of that are a part of it. But we need to first learn how to create that within. If we cannot find the safety within to look at the parts of ourselves that we don't like, we'll never integrate them. We'll never learn the lessons from these parts of ourselves. Because let's face it, we live in a relative world with every good, there's bad. With every light, there's dark. Like we have to have the ability to love all of that. And that's partially what I teach. And I teach these skills to teens. And first of all, I make exploration of the internal worlds normalized. Because can you imagine being an adult and going inward and checking in and understanding when you're getting triggered and all of this stuff? That would help you step into your own personal accountability. And instead, many of us adults had to cultivate that later in life. And just think about how different our life choices and interactions and relationships could have been had we had the trust to say, I'm okay. I'm okay. You know, yeah. I want to backtrack a little bit when we talk about shame, because, you know, people talk about shame all the time. And you know, oh, it's this terrible thing. You've got Brene Brown and the vulnerability and shame, like it's the source of all of the things. And and it is, but what I've found over and over and over is people don't connect to that yeah. word at all. Yeah. They like, if they've had something really crazy happen, they can say, oh, I'm ashamed of that. But where I think it lies for most people is this place of, well, I'm just not going to let anybody see this. I'm going to, I'm going to be, 
really good so that nobody sees this and the self-doubt and all of that stuff that's deep down for many people, those voices aren't loud yet unless something really big happens. And what they don't realize is down below, it's like the reason you make sure to spend two hours before you get ready for that date instead of 20 minutes, a half hour is because there's a part of you that's afraid to be seen, yeah. afraid to be seen. And so when we put like, put your best foot forward means you can't be messy. You can't, you can't screw it up, things like that. So those are the pieces, the little sort of hidden pockets of shame. They're not this big, overwhelming thing because you've learned how to navigate around it so you don't have to deal with it, right? If I look my best and I'm super nice on this date, then it's going to be great. <laughs> if I talk to the clients and I don't let them know that I have any self-doubt or fear of like, I need the money right now, then everything's going to be fine. But those are the little pockets that, that are indicators that maybe there's a part of you you're afraid to have seen. And that fear is, is a sign of that place that you feel like part of you is not good enough to be seen and that you might be rejected if it is. Yeah. And I find that fear is usually connected to control. So either trying to create control around a situation or lack of control. So when fear is amplified, how do we deal with it? I mean, you know, I, I, I talk about the different stages of, you know, comfort zone, stretch zone, and then panic zone. And when we're in the panic zone, yeah, we go into fight, flight, or freeze, and that's a biological response. But I'm not actually talking about that. I'm talking about the emotional response to feeling out of control. And that is an outside of your comfort zone experience for sure. And many of us are not comfortable being uncomfortable. Like the discomfort like shuts us down because of the perceived lack of control. And that puts us into a state of fear. Now, control over your own life is not really a bad thing. And I'm not actually saying this is good or bad in any particular like scenario. It's, it's however you perceive it. But having the sense of security within self to be able to experience the outside of your comfort zone experience and step into discomfort really comes from your young, from your, your earlier years. Like how did you experience showing up in your family? Were you punished? Were you shamed? Were you, you know, were you told, you know, don't feel that, don't cry, don't do, like, those are all messages that, that tell us our internal worlds are not safe. And okay, so parents sometimes make choices to choose from the convenience of the parents. They're not trying to hurt their children most of the time. I mean, there are rare circumstances, but if a parent says, look, stop crying. Everybody's looking at you. We're in the store. Stop it. You need to calm down. Yes, that's not honoring the child's emotional state, 
But in that moment, the shame that the parent is feeling right. becomes the, the dominant decision-making in this circumstance. And many times, even gentle parents or conscious parents or peaceful parents will kindly shut up their kids for the convenience of the parent. And that is still a manipulation. We need to learn as a human race, to be comfortable with the discomfort, especially of big emotions. Emotions are here to teach us. They're here to show us what's in alignment, what's not in alignment. They're teachers. They're our friends. And when our emotions play and they don't get resolved or, and in, they can't be integrated as a part of our experience. They get locked away in this little secret chamber that we call our shadows and we lock them away and we don't look at them. And that's not healthy. Well, before we, I want to really get into your story in just a minute because you did something that is really outside the box that created something really beautiful. And so, but before that, I think one of the things that's so powerful about working with teens, like sure, we're past this, you know, up to seven point, up to 10 years old point. And so a lot of that programming is locked in, but the brain is still, the brain is always changeable always but it's definitely a huge point of where it's extra changeable is during the teen years and so i think about being able to catch some of that stuff before you move into adulthood and before those pathways and those patterns become ingrained like seriously like ingrained in you is so powerful so can you tell people tell people how it is that they can um, get in touch with you and work with you so that they can support their own teens in really having the ability to create that sense of security within themselves sure so i raised my son as a partner in partnership and we call it partnership parenting and to me that is probably the most healthy way to be in relationship with another human being i wrote a book and i'm going to talk about that in just a second but i now have a son who is 23 20 i'm sorry 24 he's 24 He's been 24 for six months and I keep saying 23, but he's 24. He was raised in partnership. We lived completely nomadically from the age of nine till 2020 when the world shut down. That was about, well, that was 15 years that we left the States to live nomadically. Now we both live in Mexico. So we've been here for three years. So we're not really traveling And we're not living together anymore. When you say living nomadically, because I think people have all kinds of different ideas about what that might be. Are they, are they like hippies in the back of a van or they, what? So can you explain a little bit what you mean by living nomadically? Sure. We had minimal possessions, what we can carry in our suitcase. And we traveled to a country and dug in deep and and explored the culture. We lived, for example, 
almost a year in Guatemala. We lived three years in Cusco, Peru. We lived in Ecuador for almost a year. We spent time in Thailand. Oh my gosh, all together, probably about a year. We've been all over the world, different places, and not having a permanent home, not having a permanent base. I mean, the the most amount of time that we've been in one place has been three years, but we would always use that as our base to leave and, and travel again. But travel was a big part of our life and travel is an outside of your comfort zone experience. Right. We lived as visiting locals, so we weren't staying in luxury resorts or anything like that. And we lived on a very minimal budget, but what we gained was an incredible, rich experience. And I know, I think I told you this before, there were a lot of critics about raising a child on the road because people would use the word and ask the question, doesn't your child need security? And I know that's the topic of your call, right? But security comes from relationship. It comes from connection and living in partnership or using the partnership paradigm as my parenting style. It was honest. It was brutal. It was accountable. It was messy. And it was and still is so incredibly satisfying and connecting, right? What, my son is one of my best friends. I'm one of his best friends. And we're really, really close. And that's beautiful. It's not just about the first 18 years of life. Like I said, he's 24. And we're really good friends. We hang out and go do things all the time. And we're a big part of each other's lives. One thing that I really see when I'm picturing somebody saying to you, like, well, don't you have to give your child a sense of security? And, And it's so interesting because parents really do this thing where they try to never let their child see that they're upset, that they're hurt. So they're putting on this good face and they're keeping all the stress in it. And I'm not saying you want to sit down and talk to your kid about the fact that you have crazy money worries and like all of that. that but I level. did. I did. Are you kidding? I didn't dump it on him, but I did. I shared. I was accountable. Right. To share that because if it was upsetting me, that's the me that I'm bringing to the connection. And I'm accountable for sharing. Right now, this is not about you. I'm stressing about money or I'm stressing right. about this. And that's the key right there. This isn't about you. I, this is this other thing that's creating stress in my life. And The piece, though, that I really wanted to bring up is children are very empathic. Yeah, they they so those moments where you pretend where everything is fine, but the child feels and knows something is wrong. That's one another one of those moments where they turn inside and say, well, it must be something I did. Exactly. And so that was that was really the point I wanted to make that we put on these good faces to provide this sense of security. But internally, if we're not secure, we're actually creating the opposite outside. The child knows and feels that something's not right. And then it creates this other thing that's even and I know this so much because I because I do so much brain reprogramming work in the in what I do is that 
It's like, if it's about me, if what they say is this, but what's really happening is this, then it creates this, I don't understand what's really going on and nothing makes sense. Everything feels illogical and it creates instability internally in the child because the, you, you can't understand they feel and are acting this way, but they're saying this thing and those things really create shaky ground. Yeah. And it indicates that there are needs that are not being met. Right. And the, the clearer you are about what's happening internally, like that in partnership is a side by side process. You are accountable for the, the state that you bring to the connection and the relationship and they are accountable and it's okay if they're mad at you or you're mad at them. You need to let them know, like, this really upset me. I feel really hurt. I need to take some time to process that. Simple, right? But, you know, it's it's not about blame. And partnership parenting is a little bit on the radical side. It's a non-authoritarian parenting. I told you in the beginning, I'm an anarchist. That right. means I am not the authority over you. Nobody is the authority over me. Our connections and relationships are based on consent, which means if I'm not the authority of my child, I am the partner of my child. The thing that keeps us bonded is the connection. And going back to all the times that people asked Miro, my son's name is Miro, all the times people asked like, don't you feel like, you know, this is child abuse? Like, don't you need security? Don't you need a home where you know where your stuff is? He would always answer. And I never prompted him. I am secure. I, I have security. It's my mother. We are connected. That's my security. So we could lift that up and plop it in any country. And he still remains safe and secure because we have connection and connection is not authority over somebody. It is an authentic human relating and the spaces to do that come from trust. Yeah. You said something that is so like ding, ding, ding for the people at large, I believe, because when you said, well, that they would ask him, don't you like, don't you need that security, a place to put your stuff and that stuff, because we hang on to things because they give us a false sense of security. So I got rid of a bunch of stuff recently and I was like, oh, this little pendant that I didn't see. I'm like, huh, do I want to keep that? I'm like, there's a little sentimental value to that. And that is an attachment because a need was not met. It's a similar pendant to something that was really meaningful to me as a child that when my parents moved and I didn't get to choose any of the things that went with me. So there's that lack of need there. There's that attachment to that thing because that main needs were not met in that moment that I had no choice or no say over what I could bring or I could have any control of. So one of the things I love about this partner parentship is the choice, being able to give your child choice. 
Yeah. And feel like their needs, wants, thoughts, and all of those things matter. Tell me, tell me, how old was he when you started giving him the choice and how your the two of your lives were gonna go? Yeah. I and it also gives the child agency. Yeah. So Miro was nine when we left the States. Before that, we lived a more conventional life. I mean, you know, he went to school. You know, he came back with me to the office because I obviously was still working. I ran an ad agency and it was my company. And so, like, not only did I have the stress of doing the work, I had to bring in the work and do all of the administrative stuff. So I was always overworked. And he didn't have any power in his life before we left on this unconventional sort of lifestyle or took on this this unconventional lifestyle. And we did this in partnership. We were intentional. We said, let's be partners. This is our journey. This is our side-by-side adventure. And he really stepped into that because immediately at nine, I said, okay, we're going out of the country. You need to know how much money we have, what our budget is, how to get the money if something should happen to me, what our codes are. So from a money perspective, he knew all that. From a interpersonal, we were both accountable. Were we feeling fear? Were we feel and how, how do we unpack that? We had tools that we used to unpack that. How did we make decisions if we were going to live as anarchists, right? We were going to live without rules. We lived in alignment with core values instead and each of us defined our own core values. So we had these powerful tools to act as our scaffolding to keep us safe. And he was empowered and entrusted. And every step of the way, it was about consent. I'm not forcing him to do anything. Do you want to stay? Do you want to go? Let's pull it apart and look at that. We had negotiations. We had conversations. We had discussions. We compromised. We did all of these collaborative things, which became an active part of our family culture. And in fact, my giveaway, it's a free workshop that my son and I co-gave earlier this year. So he talks about and reflects about what it's like to be a child and living in partnership. He also, we also share some of the tools that I just talked about. So if you're interested and you're a parent of a child of any age, it's not too early or too late to start. Watch this free, it's a three-hour workshop that we did with a bunch of people. There were signups from all around the world and lots of people really interacting, but you can watch it for free. And I'm giving this to your audience as a gift because it's so important. And to watch a 24-year-old reflect and speak so eloquently about his his own experience and his internal worlds, you'll see as an example, how incredibly powerful this modality of parenting is. It's just, it's spectacular. And I'd like to even go another step further and would imagine that watching this video would be super powerful for people not just parents, but people in partnership and in relationship, because there is that place. So often we mimic our romantic relationships based off our parental relationships. 
and or what our parents had will try and find something similar and it's not always the best fit or the healthiest fit and so to do something outside the box that is to be in partnership with somebody powerful partnership full of consent is something that I think even people outside of the parenting realm could get a hold of. So for those of you who are listening, open up your browsers right now, open up your phones, type in partnershipparent.com slash free dash workshop. So partnershipparent.com slash free dash workshop. And of course, that will be available for you in the show notes as well. Now, as you go, as you guys move forward in partnership, creating this life, you guys even stepped outside the box and created a business together as well, correct? Yeah, yeah, we did. We we still have a business. We formed a company called Project World School, and it encompassed everything that that was joyful and and important to us in our lives. It was travel, community, teens, and reflection. Project World School is really about taking teens to different parts of the world to have this outside of your comfort zone experience, to be in community, to be collaborative, and to function on a consensus level, and to to step into the identity that you wish to experience. They're generally like three week or month long trips and they're in totally different places in the world and they're learning experiences without curriculum. It's all social learning and experiential learning and they're powerful trips. They're so much fun. So why teens? Why is working with teens such your passion? Yeah, that's such a great question because as I said earlier, I grew up with a lot of trauma. I grew up in a household where I was constantly yelled at. I felt like I was completely invisible. I was never seen, heard, or understood. And my adolescent years were filled with a lot of self-sabotaging behaviors and things that I did that I'm not so proud of. I mean, it was the teen years. I was very rebellious. I did, did drugs. I had sex. I did all sorts of things that well, you don't want your teens to do, but I did them. I ran away. I did all kinds of stuff. And that just happens to be part of my story. And the reason why I did all of those things is because I was very disconnected from family, from relationship, and from self. I didn't feel worthy. I didn't feel a lot of things. And as I moved into my adult years, I noticed that there were many patterns repeating, but they all focused back on the adolescent years and the adolescent years, had I just had one adult or one person see me, one person acknowledge who that I was worthy and had value, my life could have been very, very different during those years. I'm glad I went through all of those experiences because it drove me to really be passionate about never 
allowing a teen anywhere in the world to grow up not being seen, heard, or understood and not having somebody show up for them. I started in 2020. I started these free online gatherings because we were world schooling and well-known in the world schooling world. And I, I hosted these two-hour meetups for two, two, twice a week, once for a younger group of teens and tweens and, and once for the older group of teens. And we meet up the first hour on both those groups. We talk philosophy and just chit-chat. And then the second hour, we'd play and have fun and laugh together. And what I recognized and what many of the teens told me, by the way, I'm still doing them. I never stopped. It's been three years now and I will continue to do them as long as teens want to show up. But what I've been told over and over and over and over by the teens is I feel important. Somebody's showing up for me. Somebody sees me. I'm important enough for you to show up. And that is my act of, like, I'm not doing that for money. It's, like I said, totally free. I do this because I care. And I've created beautiful relationships, connections with all of the teens, hundreds of them. If you look at my book, the very last bit, I have this massive, look, Massive, massive list of names of all the teams that I think by name that have been in my life. There's hundreds of them. And I'm so grateful for each one. And it's so powerful to really have somebody see your value and reflect it back at you. I remember a very pivotal moment in my life and my transformation journey. I was at this workshop and we did this thing and not needing to go into the details, but we had to say why we deserve to live. And I was struggling with that. And then something clicked in and I was like, yes, I deserve this right. I deserve it. And so we had to get up in front of everybody and say it. And then people gave you a, a token if they thought you deserved to live, which is <laughs> so messed up. Like the reality of it is so messed up and, and you, everybody had four tokens and they could give them to whomever they thought they deserved to live. And I kept one for me because I had decided many people gave theirs away, which is also interesting, but I kept one for me and gave my other three away. And out of all the people there, I only received one. But because I was at this pivotal moment where I was just starting to really see that I deserved to live and I had value, that one person reflecting it back at me catapulted me forward towards my own healing journey. It was one of the most powerful, powerful moments in my life. Yeah. So beautiful. What a beautiful story. And I bet that person giving you the token had no idea what impact that would have. No and idea. I, it's just so powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So I, I want to just say to you, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. Yeah. You know, part of being the wolf is coming back to this sense of who we truly are. And a big piece of that is understanding that we are secure, that we are safe, 
And when we are, when we feel that from the inside out, we can truly be who we were born to be. We can do what we're meant to do. And by working with teens, you are giving so many people a leg up that might not have had it in the past. And that those one moments, even if they're not, even if everything in their life is collapsing and it's not something they can really hang on to, you've planted that seed. And when they're ready, it will come up because it's there. It's there in your subconscious mind. So sometimes people think, well, am I doing, it feels like nothing is making an impact. Nothing is making a difference. And so you all need to know that even if somebody's not ready to receive it right now, you've planted a seed and when they're ready to water it, it will grow. I totally agree with that. And by using tools, it takes the the personality out of the tool. They're just like this objective like thing that you do. And when you practice using a tool, it's not like you're doing Laney's thing. You're doing you're just using a simple tool. And when you practice it, you're starting to create new neural pathways. And so I teach tools on like all sorts of different things. One of them is reframing, the practice of reframing and and actively changing your perception from a conscious perspective. We can do that. We can control the conscious perception, which then in turn writes new neural pathways in the subconscious. And that's there. That patterning is there. And all we need to do is practice it once, twice, three times. The repetition makes it more powerful in our lives. And then it's a part of ourselves. It's a part of our patterning. So a year, two years, 20 years down the road, something happens. You can stop pause. It's another tool that I I teach and I challenge people to start practicing is pausing and then recognizing that, oh yeah, I could reframe that or I could do this or I could question that or I could use self whatever the thing is. You've got that already inside of you. So yes, I'm setting teens up for a beautiful adult journey And they're prepared with this full satchel of tools that will help them. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. And everybody open up those browsers. You can also reach out to Lainey at Transformation, well, sorry. Transformative. Transformative (laughs) mentoringforteens.com. So again, open up those browsers, transformative mentoring for teens.com. If you have a teen, definitely type it in, get on the mailing list, do whatever you got to do. If you're a parent of a child of any age, because your kid, if they're younger than a teen, they will be a teen at some point. Oh, 100%, 100%. Oh, I didn't even think of that for some reason. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you, Lainey, for sharing your wisdom and being here with us today. I really appreciate you and all that you're doing. And remember, everybody, when you operate from who you truly are, you evolve humanity. We'll see you all next time on Be The Wolf. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of Be The Wolf. 
please take a moment to rate, share, and follow this podcast so that together we can inspire others to be the wolf.